Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This week, I didn't have to do too much talking because my guest was the irrepressible Rob Walker, the master of ceremonies at all the BBC Snooker events, and a very important figure because, uh, as I say later in the podcast, he's responsible for creating the mood, setting the tone for the audience when they come in, making them feel welcome, and obviously then bringing out the players. He does a lot more besides, and he's had a very interesting broadcasting career. One thing about Rob, he is very passionate, he's very enthusiastic, and having this career clearly means a lot to him, as you'll find out later on when it gets a little bit emotional. Uh, a really good guy, Rob, and I had a really good chat with him. So here is the Snooker Scene Podcast with Rob Walker. Rob, before we come on to your snooker career, how did you start out? How did you get into broadcasting? Well, it was fairly standard, I guess, really. I always knew that I loved sports, and I always loved reading and writing and performing. So at university... I was interested in, and involved with sport. I was doing English and drama as a degree, so I was doing quite a lot uh, of acting. And I wrote for the local student newspaper uh, and the local uh, town's newspaper. I was at uni in Exeter, so I wrote some articles for the Exeter Express and Echo. Um, and then as I got towards the end of uni, I started to think, well, how do I move forward here? I narrowed it down. I thought, well, I think I'd really like sports broadcasting, I like acting, and I love working with kids. So I thought, well, acting is too precarious. So then it just seemed really obvious. I thought, well, why don't I try and become a sports broadcaster using my love of writing and sport and performing? And if for some reason I'm not good enough and it doesn't go well, then I'll go and retrain and become a primary school teacher. So then I did a journalism postgrad after I did my undergraduate degree and served a year as the student union president, went to Falmouth, really enjoyed it, and toss up, are you lucky, do you work hard, how much does, is it down to one or the other, probably a bit of both. I'd done some work for the regional television station near Falmouth, which was West Country TV, and they offered me a job straight off the course, and then, fortunately, I haven't looked back since. Mm. One thing that you can't be faulted for is your enthusiasm, and that's something you need a lot of when you're starting out, isn't it? You have to go out, knock on the doors, try and create the opportunities, because they won't necessarily fall into your lap. Nothing comes to you easily. Uh, 
you have got to demonstrate a passion for what you're doing. And of course, in the context of the snooker, some people don't like the style that I have. I think if you're in the public domain, even on a low profile level such as mine, you have to accept that no matter how genuine you are, some people might think you're being cheesy or think you're a bit of an ass. Well, <laughs> you've, got to, you've just got to get on with it. Yeah. So, yes, I would say that probably if I was asked to sort of reflect on my sort of 18, 20 years in TV so far, I would say the thing that has helped me the most is my genuine enthusiasm for what I'm doing. Because I think, as you would never lose sight of this when you're in the comms box, we are so lucky to do what we do for a living. You know, yeah, we don't earn the mega bucks that, that broadcasters did 25, 30, 40 years ago, but that's okay. We earn enough to go on holiday occasionally and put a roof over our head, but more importantly, we earn our living doing something we're passionate about. And I think those of us who are in that fortunate position absolutely owe it to the people who aren't to make the most of it and never forget the privileged position that we're in. Mm. One thing I think you're not is shy. And um, tell us about, you appeared on TFI Friday, extraordinarily, back in the day, and then again recently when it, when it came back. Just to, what were you doing on there, Doug? Yeah. Do you know what? That's so funny, Dave, because uh, it was 1997, and I was sharing a house with a guy who's still one of my best mates. And funny enough, he's a massive snooker fan. He's been to loads of tournaments with me. And we were watching TFI Friday, and they had this segment on. I hadn't watched it before this. And they had this segment on, Freak or Unique, and Evans said at the end of the show, have you got something weird you can do with your body? If you have, <laughs> get in touch with us. So when I was at primary school, I used to do this thing, because I've always been quite thin, but, but relatively strong for my, for my weight. I was, used to do this stupid thing at primary school where I could suck my stomach in and push out my six-pack. So I said to my mate, I wonder if I could still do that, because I hadn't done it since I'd been at primary school. I could do it. We went down to Dixon's in the centre of Exeter. This is way before mobile phones and video cameras and all that. Yeah, video cameras on your, on your phone. We spent 40 quid, that's a lot of money then, hiring a video camera. I videoed it. I bought a tape as well. We videoed it. My mate filmed it and, and I said, oh, hello, Chris Evans. I'm, I'm, my name's Rob. I'm at Exeter University. And I can do this thing where I can suck my stomach in. Anyway, I didn't think I'd hear any more of it, but nothing ventured, nothing gained. And then, yeah, all of a sudden I get this phone call saying... We want you on the show this Friday. And it was Wednesday. And I said, uh, OK, where is it? London. <laughs> so we went up and, yeah, it was a funny one. It just sort of, because it was a bit of fun, it was a bit stupid, but, but the show was massive in those days. So uh, it really sort of seemed to strike a chord with people because it was so silly, I guess. And I'll tell you one thing that I did learn from that, because it was filmed live. Mm. Obviously, in itself, it was just a bit of fun. But it absolutely crystallised for me that being in a live broadcast environment was very exciting. So although in itself it was just a stupid gimmick and I was on TV for 90 seconds with Chris Evans, I instantly felt an excitement at being on TV. Yeah. Nowadays you're a lot more circumspect and you're not bothered whether you're seen or not. If you're part of a live broadcast, if you're commentating, that's just as good as being seen. But it absolutely made me realise... This live TV thing is, is pretty cool, and it would be very fun if I could get involved. And then they must have just kept a tab on where people had gone and what they were up to. And again, I, I hadn't even mentioned it to my wife. Well, why would it have come up in conversation? Because I met my wife in 2008, and, and this TFI thing was in 97. So probably one of my mates had said to my wife, oh, when Rob was the elephant man, she didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> anyway, I got this email uh, in about a 
the spring of February, March time, totally out of the blue, saying we're bringing back a one-off special of Tier 5 Friday. We think, we think you're the guy who did the elephant with your stomach and you've gone on to have a relatively interesting career. Are you still able to do it? And are you willing to come on the show? And the answer to those two questions was yes. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I managed to get Becky into the main bar. And it was a lovely night to just reminisce and, and turn the clock back. Uh, and I'll tell you the weirdest thing about it, Dave. Before you went on, uh, Evans did a rerun of your previous mm. Do You Remember This? Well, the really strange thing is, when you're in your early 40s, you... you think back to when you were 21 or 22 as I was then in 97 and at that time back in the 90s I thought I was a man mm. but it was so funny standing in the wings on this one-off special looking at the footage of me in 97 and as I was looking at that as a 41 year old I thought I was just a kid then like Bambi with my arms <laughs> and legs flailing everywhere and you realize you know like what your dad said to you all you know, for all those years, you might be a man, but you've still got so much to learn. Well, I realised that in that moment, in a funny kind of way, that I was just a baby then, just bouncing all over the place and hugging Chris Evans. And yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Good. Well, speaking of a lot of fun, we come now to your snooker career. So, Alan Hughes was the MC for, for a long time. He retired. They had a couple of replacements that didn't necessarily uh, really fit. So, how did you become involved and how did you get the gig? Right. It was pretty simple. I... I'd followed, I'd probably like a lot of people, I, I, was, I followed snooker quite closely when I was young. And my dad always used to take me to this uh, place called the Old Jail in Abingdon, which was a leisure centre, not, not an actual <laughs> jail. And we used to play a couple of frames. I never had any official coaching, and I, I really enjoyed snooker, watching it and playing it. And actually, I had a little table in my house, and we've just moved house, and I've, I've put the table in my office for, for, my, for my son to play. And then I just drifted away from the game and, 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 and got into athletics and, and, and bits and bobs. I got a phone call, basically, out of nowhere from a guy called Ron Chakraborty, who's quite high up at the BBC, saying, look, we don't necessarily pay the MCs at the snooker, but they appear on our channel. So World Snooker have rung us and said, we need someone with a little bit of oomph and a bit of energy. And perhaps as a bonus, if they've got any broadcasting experience, then that'd be useful. And fair play to, to Ron who I'd known for many years. At that point, I was freelance and I'd left the BBC, but I was still on good terms with Ron, as I am now. And Ron said, we thought of you. So I had my licence as a boxing MC at that time. So Ron knew that I, I could do a bit in front of an audience. And that was it. So that phone call was something around about late October or early November 07. And my first tournament was the UK Champs in December 07. And I've done all the majors since. And... If someone had said to me then, uh, you'll be doing this for nearly 10 years, I, I, I probably would have laughed because I simply assumed that I was there to fill in for somebody else. <laughs> and in terms of all the stuff I've had a chance to do, uh, I'd probably say I am. At, it would be one of, if not the most significant moments of my career as a broadcaster certainly one of I mean getting to work on the Olympics for the BBC is huge for me because I you know I used to watch Cohen Crown racing in the early 80s so so I I can't put it up there on its own at the top but it's at least level mm. and how did it so when you started 
did did you get any sort of uh, advice or instruction maybe from Will Snooker? Okay, this is how we want you to do it, or did they leave you to to do it in your own way? I was clueless. <laughs> I didn't even know it was going to be live on TV. Right. I remember turning up and. and Alison Whitcover, who's the brilliant yeah. programme editor, I, I don't know how long she's been doing it, before 07, I didn't, I, I said hello to her, and I, I thought, oh, I don't know, does she work for World Snooker, is she the programme editor, is she a runner, I don't. so anyway, Alison showed me into the arena, and there's all cameras everywhere, <laughs> and I, I thought, um, I don't know, does this, can I, can I, can I, basically I thought, oh, shit. You've done it, so, yeah, go on, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this is going to be live on TV. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I'd done a bit of live telly then, but not tons. Mm. So, no, nobody really gave me any instruction. Mm. They simply said, you look at this camera right. and you introduce the players. And the one thing I've always been, if I could sort of give myself a, a tiny little uh, compliment, people might not like my style, I'm always well prepared. Mm. Because if you're going into any live broadcasting context, you have to do homework. Some of it may be irrelevant and you don't necessarily always draw on the research that you've done. But I recognised instantly I need to get my facts right because if I was one of these blokes waiting backstage, it would really annoy me mm. if the very moment I'm coming out for quite an important occasion, the bloke gets my numbers wrong. Yeah. And snooker is so statistically heavily orientated, it's absolutely vital that the information you're using to introduce the player is correct. Because mm. I know if it was you, you'd be annoyed, and if it was me, I'd be annoyed. Mm. So, you know... That was one thing that sort of stood me in good stead. I immediately went to Big Ive. Uh, and, God, he'd been a friend of mine now for 10 years at Ive, and we give him so much stick in that pressure, but he's a great guy, so passionate about his snooker. So I, I would religiously check, look, Ivan, I've written this about this bloke. Is this about accurate? And it's not just the specific statistics. Some of it is a little bit opinion-orientated. So you're saying, you know, you might have... We've had a debate here this week. You know, are you saying it's the biggest match of a player's career getting to the last 16 of the Welsh, as opposed to making it to the first round of the Crucible. So even things like that, I would check with Ivan, because that's an opinion going into it. It's not specifically a statistic. So, no, I mean, I was absolutely clueless, really, as to what it involved uh, and what to say. I just kind of made it up as I went along. And, listen, to be honest, you know, I, I was probably over the top and a bit cheesy to start with. But like anything, you it takes you time mm. to, to find the right level, because... If you think about the role is a little bit forced, you're, you're trying to get an audience to engage with two people. Now, you know, if they're there and their favourite player's about to come out, that's fairly easy. But they might have a ticket for a match that they weren't expecting to watch. So you're asking them to buy into that and you're asking them to create an atmosphere. Well, if the person delivering the final lines before that match begins is not up for it and does not convey energy with those words then you can't expect the crowd to give it back. So it's a, it, it's a really funny old role because it might come across sometimes like it's a bit cheesy, but in some ways that is the nature of the role. You have to be up for every match that comes out because whether it's the first round of the Welsh or it's the semis of the World Championship, it's so hard for these guys now that every time they come out on TV with a big audience... They deserve a big reception. Mm. The snooker world, it's quite small. It's a bit like a village. Everyone sort of knows each other. How were you received early on? Did you feel sort of welcomed? Yeah. Do you know what? I really did. It's, it's one thing that I've always said to everybody, that snooker is a bit of a family. Mm. 
And as you said, it's not, it's not a massive family with thousands of people working on different events. It's the same faces everywhere you go. At no point was I ever made to feel unwelcome or as if I was an outsider. And that surely is one of the great, uh, one of the great elements of, of this sport, that if you're a player coming through, you're made to feel welcome. If you're a new referee, you're made to feel welcome. If you're a new broadcast partner, like what well, I say, new Eurosport now appearing at the events, I, I think you'd struggle to find anybody who didn't find it a, a receptive, hospitable environment and atmosphere in which to ply your trade. So, without any shadow of a doubt, I was made to feel welcome from day one. And actually, you know, even in those early stages where I probably was a bit over the top, they just let me, they let me find the right level at my own. At no time was I ever taken aside for a rollicking. They just let me get on with it. So, yeah, it's a very, very friendly sport. And, and that's one of the things that I love. When you turn up at a tournament, you're not just w- watching world-class sport. You're with really nice people. And when you've been on the circuit nearly 10 years, you're turning up to work with friends. Mm. Let's talk about nicknames, because... Um it's interesting thing because you inherited quite a few that have been there for years, the whirlwind, obviously, and quite a few others. But it seems back back then, not everyone had a nickname. Now, kind of everyone has to have one. So you you've had to come up with some new ones. How does that work? Do players suggest them, or do you come up with them yourself? Well, I'd, I'd always, I, I probably, uh, it's a funny one that because some players, like I remember Sean Murphy coming up to me saying, "Can you change my nickname?" I haven't given him a nickname. It was uh, the, the predecessors. It was some something something warrior, which and he's not, you know, he's quite a gentle guy, so that didn't really suit him. So he asked me to come up with a different one, in which case you'll come up with a couple of suggestions and said this, this, or this. Uh, I think he may actually have suggested to me magician, which kind of you know works nicely for him. Uh, but I would never come up with a nickname and use it unless I had directly had a conversation with the player before using it at an occasion or an event. So I think with a few of them. I might have come up with a few suggestions and a couple of times they might have said, no, I don't fancy that. I mean, Ricky Walden, for instance, neither he or I can come up with a nickname and neither can anybody in the public domain. Well, certainly not one that's repeatable on network (laughs) TV. Uh, So, you know, I think Ricky ran a marathon. So for a bit, I was calling him the Stamina Man. But after a while, he said, look, you know, I only ran one marathon. It was four years ago. If you can't think of anything and I can't either, just don't have a nickname for me. So it's not absolutely written in tablets of stone that every player has to have a nickname, but I would always check with the player. One example, I haven't changed that many, but one example where I did manage to come up with a new one that the player liked was Robbo, uh, Neil Robertson. And Neil's nickname was the Melbourne Potting Machine, which is all right, but, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit obvious and a bit nondescript. And I said, look, Neil, you know, one of the interesting elements about you is that, you know, you up sticks and moved your life halfway across the world, a real act of bravery, and God, don't we now know what a great impact he's had on the game. I said, why don't we incorporate the fact that you're from Australia, what about the thunder from down under? And he said, yeah, yeah, mate, that, that works for me. So, you know, that's one where I did sort of think, right, we've got to move this on from Melbourne Potting Machine, and he was up for it. And Mark Williams, we've had a lot of fun with him, I sort of called him the, the Welsh has-been, although I'm very careful... When I, in the wording of using that, because the last thing I want, I love Wales, the last thing I want is 500 people abusing me on Twitter, <laughs> a double, abusing a double world champion. Mm. But he came up with that himself. So I, I usually say something like, he says, you know, he refers to himself nowadays as the Welsh has been. And then I'll sort of come up with something nice, yeah, but we know the double world champion has yeah. still got it, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so some of them are a bit of fun. Some of them I wouldn't dream of touching 
or changing with a barge pole. I mean, I don't really know where Stuart Ball run Bingham. I would never change that because he's had it for years. Mm. Does he like it? I'm not sure. I've never really spoken to him about it. But uh, it is a bit of fun. But, but yeah, there are one or two that for, for love nor money, you just can't think of anything decent. Neither me or the player. Yeah. So you just leave it alone. Yeah. Let's talk about your sort of typical day, say at the World Championship, um, because you don't just to the MC and you work for World Snooker behind the scenes as well. So they're quite long days. What, what time does it start? How does the day sort of pan out for you? Yeah, the Worlds is a funny one because obviously we have those three sessions a day which must be knackering for the players and it certainly is for us. So I'll, I'll generally get up and even though it's, it, it's pretty straightforward, it's not rocket science doing what I do, but I try and vary uh, the stats that I use. I won't just say the five-time world champion, the seven-time Masters champion. I, I might say with Ronnie, for instance, he first appeared here in 1990, whatever it is. Uh, so I'll normally be at my desk in my hotel doing that before I arrive at a venue. Because there's so many people talking to you and asking you to do this or that. You, you don't necessarily get the time to think about the intros before you rock up at, at quarter past nine. So I'll, I'll spend about half an hour at my desk at half eight uh, after my breakfast, sort of working out what I'm going to say for the ten o'clocks. After the, after the 10, it's, you have a nice half hour, hour there where you can just sort of get through a few emails and, and just sort of say hello to a few people. And then there's loads of tours that happen backstage. So, uh, you know, I mean, by trade, I'm a broadcaster. I'm not a tour guide, but I recognise the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm part of the show. And, and so, you know, when people win a competition or they've spent loads of money or whatever, then I help out. So I do the tours. I'll quite often be asked to do flash interviews at the at the interview at the champions board mm. just by where the players come off. So I'll be liaising with the BBC about that. And then what do I do in the afternoon? Uh, I do I do all the I do an interview with the winner of every match for Ivan for the website. Yeah. And then in the early stages of the World Champs, and this kind of suits me quite well, I'm normally done when I've done the intros at, at seven o'clock. And funny enough, I'm much more of a morning person. I find it far easier to get up early mm. than I do to work late. So once we get into the, you know, the last seven or eight days, then I make sure I'm always there until the very end. But in that first week, I'll generally leave the venue at about half seven and I go to bed quite early. So I'll, I'll be in bed by, uh, I know this sounds really boring, <laughs> but, but the days are, the days are quite tiring. Mm. I'll normally be in bed by about nine and then I'll get up early and go for a run because Again, when you first start doing it, it's really exciting. And the fact that you're on TV for 20 seconds or whatever before you do the intros, you think, oh, my God, I'm on TV, and you're going on a lash every other night. <laughs> but now I'm much more calm about it. And also I recognise, even though I'm only on the box for a very short amount of time, by the nature of the fact the event's 17 days, you are going to look more tired as the event goes yes. on. So if you're adding hangovers into that as well, you start to feel awful and look very, very tired. Mm. So you can't do that. So there'd be loads of people I'd want to go for a few beers with, but I don't start doing that until very near the end of the tournament because, you know, the, the, the players' walk-ons need to be tipped top. And if you're 5% off, that might be imperceptible in terms of a television audience, but it's 5% less energy and the players deserve that energy. So your, you know, your beers and your, you know, your, your, your late spring evenings out, well, they can wait because... The championship's only 17 days. You know, I can go and have a couple of late nights with my wife if I fancy it when I get back home early, early May. But, um, yes, it's a, it's a brilliant event, the world's, but, but you're always knackered by the end, whatever your role is. And in terms of the MC at the Crucible, does it, does it feel different to the other tournaments? Is that that sort of special feeling about it? Ah, oh, listen, 
I'm sure it's the same for you when, when you guys rock up from the semis onwards from your base at Felton. There isn't anything that compares to the Crucible. Now, I don't say that meaning any disrespect to the other tournaments. I always love the UK because it's great to be in York and the build-up to Christmas is, is nice and, 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 and there's such a history with the UK. Masters at Ali Pali, well, it's really grown into being a great event at that venue. It could, be, it could feel really cavernous down there in London, but it doesn't. The atmosphere is excellent. Welsh is brilliant because we're in Cardiff, um, you know, and, and, and everything's so accessible and so close to the venue. But still, in spite of all those great things about all those other events, there isn't anything that compares to the Crucible because of the history, because of the fact it's the climactic moment of the whole season. And also, Dave, it's the physical layout of the arena itself. When you're down there, and I guess on a regular basis, I am the only person other than the players and officials who would be on the arena floor whilst the venue's full. When you're uh, doing an intro and you hear the noise, it seems to bounce off those two main sides of the horseshoe and come back across you from both directions. So the noise is all-encompassing. It's almost 360 degrees around you. And, and the fact that you're a couple of feet lower than the front row as well, the eye line of the audience is right there with you doing the intros and then with the players getting down on the shots. So because of everything it represents and the physical layout of the arena, there isn't anything that compares to the Crucible. And, and, and because Sheffield is such a friendly place as well, getting off the train on the Tuesday, if it's the Tuesday, if I come up for the, for the, um, the last round of the qualifiers, or if it's the Friday night, if I just rock up in time for the, for the 17 days, I'm really happy when I get out of the train station and I'm really looking forward to it because it's, it's just such an amazing event. And I was so pleased to hear Barry say that for whatever it is, another 10 years or 12 years or whatever, that it's not leaving Sheffield. Because I, I, I absolutely wholeheartedly believe if the tournament had left, even to make more money for, for World Snooker or even to make more money for the players, it really would have lost something very, very special that I think any other venue would have struggled to replicate. It belongs in Sheffield, in my opinion. It deserves to be in Sheffield. And it, it's absolutely superb that for at least another decade or whatever it is, we know it's going nowhere. Yeah, it's good news, absolutely. I think you have a really hard job because you, you have to create the atmosphere, don't you, at the start of the match? You have to create the mood and you have to get it right. That's the important thing. And what a lot of people don't understand is that you don't just go out there and, and talk when you want. You're waiting to be queued. So you're waiting maybe sometimes three or four minutes and then you're on and you've got to get it right. And you never drop a word. But there was what, just one occasion I remember at the Crucible where things didn't quite go to plan. Steve Davis was being introduced. He turned out for the last time. And, of course, he'd had the big match with Dennis Taylor, the exhibition, 30 years on. And, uh, well, there was a slight mix-up, wasn't there? Oh, yeah. Listen, I, I know, <laughs> don't, don't be nervous about bringing it up at all. I don't mind talking about it in the, in the least. Uh, yeah, you try and get it right every time. But when you're live on TV, occasionally you're going to make a mistake. And you hope your mistakes are fewer than your, than your spot-on deliveries. And most of the time, that is the case. But... Yeah, it was just a funny one in 2010. I mean, I, you know, it, it, I can remember it so clearly. So, Stephen had that fantastic win uh, over Higgins, and, and what an achievement. I mean, still, okay, you can't put it alongside winning six world titles, but making the quarterfinals in your 50s, I mean, it's just absolutely incredible. Even Ronnie would view that as a fantastic yeah. achievement if he could make the last eight in, in whatever it is, eight or nine years' time. So, Davis is, is there and he's, he's, he's coming out to face Neil Robertson. And I think 
slightly fortunately for me, bearing in mind the cock-up I was about to make, he was 12-4 down, mm. so he knew it was effectively over. Yeah. So, being 2010, we were 25 years on, and all I could hear, all you heard around that uh, tournament was Davis Taylor, Davis Taylor, Davis Taylor, because they were going to do a one-frame rematch, and obviously it was great to reminisce, and geez, time goes so quickly, you think, wow, it's 25 years... So all you're hearing around the tournament for that 10 or 12 days are the two names said right next to each other. To add, to, add, to, to, to compound, it always takes a series of coincidences to make a cocker. Mm. And another one was that uh, Taylor was commentating. Right. So I had Taylor's face <laughs> on my radar and I had just introduced him to the arena floor, not on TV. So all these things uh, swilling around and, and, and you know, you're, you're, you're trying to, as you say, you're trying to create an atmosphere. And sometimes, you know, I, once I've done my little intro line setting the, that session in context, when I get into the intro uh, where the cameras are then on the player waiting in the wings, I sometimes engage audience members with eye contact as I'm going through the lines. So I remember being genuinely excited that Davis was coming out, even though we knew he was all in all likelihood going to lose heavily to Robbo. Uh, so I've gone through the lines, you know, one of the all-time greats, you know, what a story, he's flourishing into his 50s, and then I said, you know, here he comes, and I glanced up and looked at someone in the crowd, <laughs> and went, the six-time champion of the world, and I was so excited, in that moment, I just said, Dennis Taylor. <laughs> and as soon as I'd done it, I corrected myself instantly and, and sort of did a little bit of an embarrassed laugh. I went, uh, Steve Davis, and everyone laughed. Now, I was absolutely mortified because it was an accident, and I, and I, but I recognised straight away, I thought, right, I haven't dropped an F-bomb, <laughs> I haven't slagged anyone off, mm. I made a mistake, I'm human, mm. and everyone laughed. So as I delivered the correct name... I looked at the camera, shook my head and smiled as if to say, oh, sorry. So I was quite human about that. I think if I'd stood there and frozen, my awkwardness would have translated yes. across to the audience yes. and to the arena, the people in the arena. So I was really lucky that my initial gut reaction was to own up and say and sort of visually go, oh, sorry about that. And then the other the other thing that, that allowed me to sort of get away with it a little bit was... Davis's reaction because he came down the stairs and being the class act that he is he laughed and hugged me and when the audience I'm talking about the arena audience rather than the television audience although it may have gone out on TV I've never watched it back uh, when the audience in the crucible saw Steve laughing and hugging me they actually I think enjoyed it more because they realised they were part of a little moment mm. that happened by accident and that hadn't caused anyone any offence. Mm. And then what made it even funnier was, as Steve walked to his chair, there was somebody, by coincidence, in the front row with a rather large, thick pair of glasses, <laughs> which he borrowed, put on, yeah. and did the index finger wag <laughs> to, to, to kind of, you know, to recreate that moment that we've seen millions of times. So it was, it was funny. I was mortified. When I walked off... I wasn't laughing, I wasn't near tears, I realised it wasn't the end of the world, but I was mortified, because I absolutely really admired Steve as a person and a player, but I realised, okay, it's not the end of the world, and the first thing I wanted to do was go straight back out and do another intro and not make a mistake, and, and I, I, I've no idea now who I introduced that evening, 
but I was absolutely determined to do a normal intro with no mistakes. And after I'd done that, I thought, right, I've just got to forget about this. And I've always been quite good in the sense that I don't read a massive amount of what's written about me online um, because I think you can end up tying yourself in knots. It's not that I don't think people's opinions count, but if someone's opinion really counts, they'll come and talk to you. Mm. So whatever, whether I was being slagged off or not, I don't know. I probably was. And, and yeah, it was, a, it was a huge mistake to make. But mistakes happen. It's how you respond to that in the immediate moment, and it's how you bounce back from a mistake that probably defines you as a person. So it was one of those things, and weirdly, do you know what, Dave? It is one of my fond memories of my nearly 10 years at the Crucible, because it's just one of those things. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was a funny old day, that, wasn't it? Well, nobody died, that's the, that's the good news. You have incredible energy, Rob. You have incredible energy, you're always running, you're always sort of doing stuff. Where does that come from? Uh, well... I've always run, you know, I've been really honest about this. My first love in sporting terms yeah. is athletics. I first, first watched Cohen Cram. Uh, my mum let me, uh, got me up late to watch the, the LA final when, when Seb won his second in a row and Crammy got the silver having won the world title in Helsinki in, in 83. So my love affair, my first sporting love affair was, was athletics and that has never left me. Um, and alongside that is my love of running. I think if you're tall and thin and a bit mal-coordinated, running's about the only thing you might be any good at. And I've always been quite determined in, in that regard and in life as well. So running's my, running's my thing and I, and, and I love uh, getting out. I love being outdoors and, and I never run with music. I like to run in the countryside and look at wildlife. And sometimes if you, I don't know, say you're balancing your money, I might go over my budgets for the month whilst I'm out for a run and just sort of put things in, in a little, little box. But generally, Dave, I'm just a, I'm just a cup half full type of person. I've always had a, I've always been lucky that I've got a sunny disposition. I try and see the best in everything. And let's face it, I've been very lucky with my life. You know, I came from a really good home. My mum and dad were together, uh, a very supportive environment. I had an absolutely brilliant education, and I do a job I love. Touchwood, fit and healthy at the moment. Uh, love my wife. Love my son. So I think if you're healthy and you're doing a job you love and you're spending time with people you love and you've got enough money in the bank, well, you ain't got a lot to be miserable about. So, you know, I'm always incredibly grateful for what I've got, for what I do and for the people I spend my time with. So I guess it just sort of comes from that, really, that I'm always up for it, because if life smiled upon you and I do look, I do view life like that, that I have been smiled upon, even though I do work hard. You haven't got a reason to be miserable, so I'm always up for it. Mm. And I guess the cherry on the cake for you was working on the Olympics, because as you say, you've grown up watching it, you, you did the sailing reporting, that was very memorable, and also yeah. you, you've done athletics commentary, which I, I guess is, is, a, is a huge thing as, as, a, as a boy who loved athletics. Ah, listen, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, I would always be grateful to the BBC, so I was a behind-the-scenes guy in Athens in 04, and then... Uh, the sailing was, was, was a big opportunity for me because it was a chance. So that was the summer of 08. And I'd done a few snooker tournaments by then, but not loads. But I'd already become associated with snooker, which is great. Mm. But it was a chance to remind people, I guess, that I was a broadcaster as well as just an MC. Uh, so the sailing was good in Beijing because uh, we got so many gold medals and, and it was the first time that I think any broadcaster had tried to put someone on the water, which is a bit of a... Uh, a challenging environment to broadcast in because you can't hold any notes. 
because one hand's holding the microphone and the other hand's holding onto the rib, which is the rubber boat that takes you up and down. Yeah. So we were bouncing along on the water and you're having to think, right, I've, I've just got to say what I see here and make it up as I go along. And you can only memorise so much if you're in a challenging environment getting soaked with waves coming over the <laughs> side. So I think it kind of, weirdly, that sort of stuck in people's minds a bit, yeah. I think, the fact that it was quite a memorable place to book up. So, so yes, the sailors were a bit like the snooker players in the sense that it was, I had no experience of working in sailing. But they were very welcoming and accommodating. So the sailing in Beijing and, and Weymouth was, was absolutely superb. And, and interviewing Ainsley after he became, mm. statistically speaking, the greatest Olympic sailor in history was, was a real honour. Uh, and I was involved in the opening ceremony bit down at Weymouth as well on the stage, which was, you know, a lot of people there, seven, eight thousand. I just sort of helped out a bit. And that, that was very special. But the most amazing thing I've ever done, um, and I can even... I can feel that I'm even getting emotional just talking to you about it now, uh, was, was finally getting to, to, to commentate on the athletics at the Olympic Games because I recognise that the BBC have got a very well-established team and that's fine. I, I've got no issue with that. Uh, and the Olympic Broadcasting Service, which is the broadcasting arm of the, of the IOC, they oh. offer an English-speaking commentary service on every sport because there are many countries and many uh, rights holders who don't have the money to send their own commentators. So they were looking for a track athletics commentator. And I said to the BBC, I totally, I totally, uh, I'm very relaxed about the fact that you're not going to have an athletics role for me. I'm just double checking you don't. Because if you haven't, I've had this amazing opportunity from OBS to go to uh, Rio and, and, and do the track athletics commentary. So thanks very much for Beijing and for Weymouth, but um, I'm, I'm going to go and do this. And it was the only thing, I can honestly say this, it was the only thing that I was desperate to do as a broadcaster that I hadn't done. I, I mean, it would no, be no exaggeration to say that that was the fulfilment of a lifelong goal for me. It would be a bit like you, the first time you commentated on the World Championship final. It would have been hugely emotional for you. You don't let that come across in your commentary, but you'd have had texts from your parents yeah. and your close friends going, I'm really pleased for you, you've finally done the thing you've dreamt you would do all those years ago. Uh, and, and my event is the 1500. Because I was a county champion at 1500 and cross country, so I was okay, mm. but probably like millions of people, uh, you know, it, I was good, but I wasn't good enough to make that jump from regional to, to national and international, and I'm totally cool with that. I knew that probably by the time I got to about 16, I thought, I'm, you know, on a school and county level, I'm good. I know I'm good, but but I'm not that good. Uh, so I knew that my my Olympic experience would would come as a broadcaster. So anyway. I was working with this brilliant uh, Australian bloke and we carved up the races between us and by coincidence I got the men's 1500 mm -hmm. and what, as I said, watching Cohen Cram in 84 cemented my love affair with, with the Olympics and with athletics and when I introduced the starting lineup, I was almost crying. <laughs> I remember the, the start sheet came up and I said, now to the final of the men's 1500 metres and it was the last night of the Games and... It, I it was all I could do. It took all my composure to not to not have my voice crack with emotion. And then, luckily, of course, when the race starts, you've got to get on with it. Yeah. Um, and it was incredible. I, I, I count myself in amazingly fortunate that we came off air, and the two other guys. I walk really quickly, so we're walking back to a bus. But I said to the other two blokes, "Look, I'll catch you up. I'm just going to sit here for a minute and." I told them I, was, I had some notes to, to, to pick up. I didn't. I just wanted to sit and, and just absorb the moment. And funny enough, uh, my dad uh, did a FaceTime with me and uh, I showed him the empty stadium. And uh, 
yeah, it was uh, a really amazing moment because, uh, you know, I was thinking about all that, um, all that uh, my uh, my mum and dad had done for me over the years to to put me in that uh, position. And, um, you know, it sounds pathetic talking about it, but my dad told me how uh, proud he was of me. And, uh, yeah, I just sort of sat there and thought um, how lucky I am to have achieved a, a goal I'd had since I was eight. And uh, I'd finally done it. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a really big moment for me. So um, I'll tell you what, it's lovely to hear in an industry that, as we know, is quite cynical, that it means that much to you to be doing something that you, you've dreamed of. Oh, yeah, it was, uh, it was massive. Yeah, it was really special. And, um, and I'd like to do another 1500 in, in Tokyo. But, but, you know, if something happened to me and, I, and it never happened and, 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 you know, I never got to do it again, I'll, I'd always be able to say that. I did the very thing I dreamt I would do as a child, and and that's an incredibly fortunate position to be in. And the other thing I thought as as I left the stadium, my son's called Arthur, and he's just uh, he's a little toddler, and I thought to myself, right, my job now, apart from sort of carrying on earning a living for the family and all that, my job now is to do absolutely everything I can to help my son discover something that he's passionate about. It doesn't have to be athletics. It doesn't have to be snooker. Probably take one look at the way I earn a living and go, God, I never want to be anywhere near a microphone. But that, that is my raison d'etre now, that apart from wanting to carry on doing a good job and, and working with nice people, I want my son to discover something he's passionate about. And if he can earn his living doing that, then all the better. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, Rob, thanks for your time. And thanks for your enthusiasm as well. I, we see it in the arena. But a lot of people listening, they won't see it backstage. I've seen you do these tours. I've seen other people do them as well. And they're not always necessarily want to do them. But you always make people feel like they're part of an experience. They're part of an event. And, of course, it makes people want to come back. It's not just about the snooker. It's about everything else around it. And I think everyone would agree that you are now a very important part of that as well. So uh, keep going. And, and thanks a lot for being on the podcast. No, that's really nice of you to say that, Dave. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, ten, it's almost 10 years and counting. Let, let's hope with, with luck and good fortune we're, we're here chatting in another te- decade. Brilliant. Thank you, Rob. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.